0: Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Good to be back. Thank you to Jerron for filling the pulpit for us. It's one of the things I think we really are blessed about here at Calvary is between Pastor Sean and Jerron, uh, I can throw a Sunday morning to either one of them, and they're going to bring, as some of you have texted me, a little bit better of a word than what we normally hear on a Sunday. You know, so we're praying for you, you know, as the Lord's trying to do a work in your heart. So, no, it's, uh, it's always good. It, w- it was awkward. We went to another church uh, in uh, Lawrence, Kansas, you know, the promised land of KU, Rock Chalk Jayhawk, right? And so we're sitting there. I'm sitting with the family, and I have no responsibility. Like, I, like the worship got done, and I was getting ready to walk up, and I'm like, oh yeah, I don't preach here. That's right, you know. So, but it was good just to be together with the family, and I thank you for that time away. We did a wedding um, from one of our former students when I was a student pastor, Um, You're not supposed to have favorites, uh, but we do. And he was one of those. And so um, it was really just neat to be a part of. So if you have your Bibles this morning, we're continuing our study through Revelation that we're calling the Letter from Patmos. Uh, We actually had somebody in our college life group, where are you at, somewhere, just got back from visiting Patmos. I said, man, you know more about this than I do. How about you get up there? So, um, and this is the part. So open up to Revelation 6. Revelation 6. Honestly, this is the part that everybody's been waiting for. Like, once we heard, hey, we're going to go through Revelation, it's like, how's he going to handle all the crazy doom and gloom and death and fire and blood and guts, and we're just going to, like any other part of Scripture, we're going to walk through and hold fast to what the Word really says. And there's a few reasons why I wanted to step into the book of Revelation, and and if I step on your toes, you're welcome. Um, You know, the world is crazy, none of us are shocked by that. And if you are, like, just turn on the news. And a lot of times we will see things that are going on in the world and we wanna run straight to scripture and try to find the identifiers and say, oh, well, is that the Antichrist? Or is that the mark of the beast? Or is this one of the trumpets? Or is this one of the you know, seals? Is this one of the bowls? Is, like, And we try to identify these things and, and a lot of times it leads us into bad theology. So much that people have, not just ruined their lives, but lost their lives over things like that. Because the other reason that I wanted to step into Revelation is when you look at any of the Christian cults that have affected the landscape of human history for us, a lot of times there's a twisting of the book of Revelation. And the first one that just comes to the top of my mind anytime we kind of discuss that topic is back in like 93, 94 down in Waco, Texas with the Branch Davidians and David Koresh. His main teaching was on the seven seals that we're gonna walk through this morning. And he used those horribly twisted scripture to bring about what he wanted and put himself at the same level, or if not higher, than Jesus Christ. And there's even you know, the idea that they thought he would return after that whole thing happened in Waco and he was killed, that they were expecting a resurrection from him some of his followers that left early. And so there's just, there's a need for us to have you know, consistent biblical teaching and what, what does this really say? Not, not from an Instagram reel, not from a cult, or, but just taking the word like we would any other book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, put it in its context, where does other scriptures speak to it and so that we can read this. Because again, the book of Revelation is a book of hope. It's a book of encouragement. And so, wh- and so we have to challenge the mentality of why is there so much doom and gloom and like, some people thought I was crazy to go into the book of Revelation. You're really gonna preach that? It's like, I, I didn't get that pushback on Matthew. You know, nobody was like, really? The Gospel of Matthew? Like, that's bold. That's bold, pastor. Like, no, it's the word of God. And it was written and preserved for us. This is for the church. And so as we are walking through this, and we're going to get into some of these crazy events of it, like it's, it's going to get crazy. But we have to understand a few things before. There's been about three universal judgments upon all of human history, right? So if you've been in a, uh, like me, I grew up in a, a Southern Baptist church with my grandparents, pews, organ, piano, hymns, Sunday school. And Sunday school, like you always learned about Noah's Ark. First time that God... Poured out his judgment on all of humanity, right? And it was so impactful that we paint it in every children's nursery from then on out. You know? We always paint the animals, but we never paint the other, you know, all of humanity banging on the side of the ark wanting in that are gonna be destroyed. I don't know why they don't put that part in there. We're like, if we're gonna be biblical, let's be biblical. But that is the first universal judgment that God poured out on all of human history. And we have the rainbow as that covenant to say that God will not destroy the earth by water. That is a covenant that we hold to. And then we fast forward a little bit, what we're walking through right now and we're starting this seven year period called the tribulation, where this is another universal judgment of God that he's pouring out on all of human history, where the first one was by water and we understand this one's gonna be, there's gonna be a lot of fire to this one, right? As we walk through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, there's going to be a lot of fire with it. And there's a refining that's going to be happening, and that's, that's the focus of this one. But there's still one more universal judgment that was poured out on all humanity. And if we don't know and understand it well, none of the events that we're going to talk about in the coming chapters of Revelation, as we understand the outpouring of God's judgment on earth, they won't make sense. Because that third one was the cross of Christ, that he poured out his judgment for all humanity, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So all of his judgment and wrath poured out on Christ for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then obviously we're going to talk about that response that any of us who believe in him will not perish, will not have to endure that wrath Christ satisfied all of it and that we could have eternal life in him. It's kind of like this. Let's say you uh, have a couple of credit cards and you just rack them up, right? Again, Old Navy having a deal, you gotta go, right? So you rack up some credit card debt and you're under massive debt. But somebody comes along and says, I wanna pay that debt off for you. You have the opportunity to say yes and you could be debt free and someone else pays your debts or God is so gracious to us, He gives us free will that we can reject that offer to have our debt paid. (coughs) And so if we refuse to allow somebody to pay our debt, so let's go with the old Navy credit card, there's gonna be consequences. There's gonna be repercussions. There's gonna be, it should impact your life a little bit, you know, in the same way. That if we reject the offer to have our debt forgiven, by simply just putting our trust and our faith, I was trying to combine those words, trust and our faith in Jesus, to have our debt forgiven. If we refuse that, there's gonna be consequences with that. Like with anything, we make our decisions and our decisions make us. And God will allow us, he will permit us to do the same thing on an eternal level. That if you wanna refuse his free gift of salvation, and you do not want him to pay off your sinful debt, and you want to remain, keep that remained upon you, he'll allow it. He will not force you into a relationship with him. He's a gentleman that way. But there will be consequences for it. There will be things that your, the trajectory of your life will probably look different than those that have placed their faith in Christ. And that's what chapter six is about. And that's what starts this. Because when we read these events, when we read the things that are going to happen, we don't want to look at these and try to interpret God, because it's going to skew us. How could a loving God do these things? That loving God went to the cross to pay that debt. You rejected the love of God. You rejected the grace of God. And that has repercussions from it. Those, Those have consequences for it. And that's where we're picking up in chapter six because we can't ignore everything that we've already read and studied. And we've already seen where the church is in the throne room, sitting around the throne with God. We are, as I was saying in first service, we're in the balcony looking down on earth and seeing how this is going on. This is not reserved for us to experience and to endure. The church is gonna be raptured, caught up as 1 Thessalonians tells us then his wrath is going to be poured out. And so understand that that free gift of salvation is not just a salvation to and a deliverance to God and a right relationship with him, which is more than enough reason for any of us, but it's also a deliverance from because his wrath has to be poured out on sin or God would not be just. He can't just wink at sin and be like, oh, it's not a big deal you know, yeah, this time I'll, I'll, I'll let it slide, but, you know, maybe next time I'll get you. No, all sin has to be punished. But he does not want to pour out his punishment on us. That's not his desire. He doesn't desire any to perish, but to all to come to a saving relationship with him. But if we reject that, what's that gonna look like? Revelation chapter six. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures with a voice like thunder come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red, For a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When I opened the fourth seal, or when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. who were to be killed as they themselves had been and when i opened the sixth, when he opened the sixth seal i looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in caves and among rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and the rocks fall on us hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? It's an important question at the end that they're shouting about as they are calling like it's so it's going to be so incredibly distraught and painful i like can't even put adjectives to it well that they're calling for mountains and rocks just to fall on them that whatever that would endure has to be better than the wrath of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the lamb you know some theologians say oh this isn't the wrath of god yet it's not really happening but you hear them almost saying like this is it and to be very honest, this is this the first of three waves of what God is going to do through this seven-year period called the tribulation. And so we see here the what is kind of known, at least in, in our culture, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we have different color horses, different riders, and they mean different things. And you know, one of the questions that we've been trying to answer well as we walk through Revelation is, you know, is this literal? Is this figurative? Is this symbolic? And what we know is each of those are rooted in a reality. Right? I mean, the very simple. We've talked about it before. Like if I say, hey, my grandma kicked the bucket. We, we understand that's a figurative way to describe and articulate a reality that is happening. And so in the same way, like, is there really gonna be horsemen? Is there really gonna be different colored horses? You know, I thought that was Wizard of Oz, not the book of Revelation. Horsemen, like, is that really what's gonna happen? What's that gonna look like? Is what John, what he's looking at and what's really gonna happen on earth, what we know, it's rooted in a reality. And, and John is writing to the best of his ability at that point to us as the church. Again, this book is for us as the church as a hope and an encouragement that God will not allow sin to continue on, that he is bringing an end to transgression as Daniel chapter nine tells us. Well, what do those events look like? doesn't look good. looks good for us because we are not destined to endure the wrath of God. But it doesn't look good for those that reject, again, that free gift of salvation. And we have to understand that nobody's gonna be through this and looking at God, shaking their fist and thinking like, why am I here? Like, you treated me so unfairly. Like, I totally would have went with you. We see at the end, they run from God. But at the same breath, because like we're reading these, and it's like, wow, like that's the God that we serve? Like, why wouldn't He want to save people from this? There's still one more chapter. Chapter seven is a parenthetical chapter that are describing the events that are happening during this time. So hold fast to that. Because we, as the church, there's nothing more that you want to get the church fired up about as talking about revival. We would love for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and revival where there would just be another Jesus movement, like the movie they made, you know, happening out in California, which was really all over the entire world. We 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 want another revival where people just in in mass quantities are coming to the Lord and having a saving relationship with him. You know the greatest revival described in scripture is going to be in the tribulation that even as God is pouring out his wrath, and I believe he's doing it in a very ordered way as an extension of his mercy. Because in doing that, those that have a heart hardened towards God, it's further hardened. But those whose heart would soften to the Lord, even in the tribulation, will turn to him in salvation. Will it be a hard life for them? Absolutely, and we'll get to that next week. But we see God's grace and his mercy going forward. And so these seven horsemen, we get the first guy, he's, he's on a white horse. And a lot of theologians, there's the big discussion, is this Jesus? Is this the Antichrist? Is this somebody else? You know, is this a picture of the Parthians who took over Rome at one battle? Like, what is this? And we have to look at that because uh, a lot of times we'll see white horse, like, oh, that has to be Jesus because we know he's riding in on a white horse. But we also have to understand a counterfeit is going to look very much like the exact same. So we have to dig a little bit deeper. Yes, it is a white horse, but if you look at his rider, what's the weapon that he's given? We know Revelation one tells us that Jesus has the sword of truth. This rider has a bow, but no arrows. And that's signifying that he's gonna initially conquer through peaceful means. And we know that's how the Antichrist, when he is revealed, is gonna sign a covenant with the Jews that they can rebuild their temple which there's already a movement of that trying to happen. And the Antichrist is going to allow the Jews to start their sacrificial system again. Daniel chapter nine tells us that the Antichrist halfway through the tribulation at the three and a half year mark, he's going to break that covenant. Well, you can't break what you haven't signed. So he's going to initially lead through peace. And even that weapon, that bow with no arrows, there's going to be a threat of war, but he's going to conquer through peaceful means. And then the other thing that you know, some people uh, you will see is like, is the Antichrist gonna be revealed first before the rapture, how that's gonna go down? We have to understand that this is God's design. He is sovereign. He is not being reactive. God is proactively leading these events. Satan, the enemy, is not omniscient. He doesn't know what God is going to do. God is leading in this. He is absolutely sovereign. And so Satan is merely responding. So once the church is raptured, that is gonna be the signal to the enemy to reveal the antichrist. And that is key for us, because think about it. If Satan doesn't know when the rapture is, which he doesn't, that means he has to have a man on the podium ready to go at any given notice. And have we had some men of just pure evil through almost every generation of human history? Absolutely. Because Satan has to have a man ready to go because he doesn't know the day of the hour. Why? Because it is our God who is leading in this. This is not God being reactive like, oops, Satan's doing something, let's try to fix it. No, this is God culminating the events of human history that's leading in it. And Satan in this final rebellion is the one. And so he, I mean, like a part of the wrath of God that is being poured out in this first seal is that he is permitting and allowing for the Antichrist to be revealed. Like that is a wrath of God that this Antichrist is going to be allowed to be revealed. And he's going to give a crown to him you know, not a diadema, that's a crown of a kingly crown. That's what Jesus wears, and we'll read about that in like Revelation 19:20. He's given a Stephanus crown, which means a victor's crown, that the wrath of God is gonna allow this Antichrist to have victory, that he's gonna come in conquering and to conquer. Now, if you're sitting next to the person and you kind of like him a little bit and you both have a Bible, one of you could keep Revelation 6 open, and the other one, if you wanna turn to Matthew 24, you're going to see a nice parallel between these two passages. And we know Matthew 24 is to be the Olivet Discourse. And we think Jesus is going to be talking about the church age. Uh, A lot of uh, theologians believe that about Matthew 24, but he's really referencing what's going to happen in the tribulation. See, the Jews at that time rejected Christ as the Messiah. They didn't understand the church age. And so he just kind of skips that whole part and says, all right, let's pick back up the story of where the Jews are gonna be in the main story of the narrative of what God's doing. And so that's the tribulation. And you can see these go by because as the first seal is broken and that's the Antichrist, Matthew 24, 5 says that many will come in my name, that there's gonna be many Antichrists that will all culminate in one. So there's always been men throughout human history that claim to be Christ and they're not. Actually, I did a study uh, with my students one time. We were talking about this, um, and this was just a couple of years ago, so I'm sure the numbers haven't changed drastically. Hopefully not. But there were 44 men or women that were alive at that time to believe that they were the reincarnated Jesus Christ. 44. Now, I know there's like seven and a half billion people on the earth, but I'm just thinking, that's a high number. That's a high number. So there's already many coming in the name saying, oh, yeah, I'm Jesus. That was David Koresh. He said that he was the Christ. But there's going to be a culmination to it. And if you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.3, so we're going to be kind of all over the place a little bit. So 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 3 says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape fits very well towards the end of it. And so you're thinking about this. Like, put, the, put all the events together. So right now, let's do so a little bit of math, right? And we're not going to do uh, eight and a half or any of that. Like, we're going to keep hold numbers. We're going to keep at kindergarten level, like I know my education, okay? So roughly, if you round, there's about eight billion people on Earth. Eight billion. And if uh, Wikipedia is right, which it's not, um, they say there's about two and a half billion Christians on earth and if they're right and they can judge the hearts of people, let's, let's just go with that number because it's pretty good. Two and a half billion people are going to be raptured out and I think all children will as well. Think about that. Two and a half billion plus I think all kids will be raptured up. The world that is left will have to answer that and I have some theories. But that's for another sermon. How is the world going to account for two billion people to suddenly be gone? And what's 1 Thessalonians tell us? Scripture tells us that the world is going to act like, oh, yeah, we're in peace. Everything's good. Life's never been better. Really? Two billion people gone and life's never been better? Really? Keep going. Because. They're gonna look and think that everything's fine, that we are at peace, and so how can peace be a part of the wrath of God? Like, those those words don't seem like they fit very well. Like, hold on, we're talking about God's wrath, and it's about to be a bloodbath. Like, how are you talking about peace? Well, who's bringing peace? I'm gonna use the air quotes on that word. See, Jesus says, I will give you peace, not like the world gives that I give. I'm gonna give you true peace, but who's bringing peace here? The Antichrist. That's not true peace then. It's going to be a facade of that. It's going to be very deceptive of that. And so when we think about who this Antichrist is, it's not going to be some little red devil with horns and a tail and riding around on the white horse. I think he's going to be a very diplomatic leader. So much that the world is going to want to unite together into one nation. Why do we need separate leaders dealing with things? This guy is so good. We need him to lead everything. This, is, this Like, out of all the years of human history of different nations fighting against, they've never had a leader like this person. Like, that's the level of deception. Yes, the enemy only wants to steal, kill, and destroy, but nobody ever said that that was gonna be his first move on the chessboard. He's gonna come. Conquering and to conquer, but he's gonna start with peaceful means. And so think about that even for us today, even though we as the church will not endure this, but it does beg the question for us, if we find peace even now today in anything or anyone other than Jesus, is that really true peace? Oh, if I could just get that job promotion. Oh, if we could just get that house. Oh, if we could just buy that one car. If he'll just say, you know, get off his backside and ask me to marry him, then my life would be better. If she would just say yes to the dance. There's a lot of things that we put on the throne of our heart for peace. But if it's not Christ, that's not true peace. And whatever you're yearning for, you made it your idol, and that's your personal little Jesus that will only fail you because it's not truly Christ. And so we have to see that just as these people in this tribulation are gonna be deceived with this person leading that's gonna provide peace, we do the same thing in little things or people in our own lives. That we truly need to look to Christ for true peace of our heart and our soul. And then we have seal number two. It's a red horse with war and conflict. So Matthew 24, verses six and seven reference that. There's gonna be wars and rumors of Wars. And this is not just like, it's going to be more than just a war of nation versus nation, but I think the increase of murder is going to be astounding. It's going to be like normal, everyday kind of things. Some of you probably are already thinking, well, that sounds like what we're dealing with right now. This is the normal course of human history. This is going to be increased to a divine level. And then we have a black horse. This is the third seal, and the black horse is a symbol of famine. And the is going to be holding a pair of scales, which is a symbol of commerce, and there's going to be a control of commodity prices. And because it's going to be scarce and the prices are going to go up, there's going to be increased famine. You know, and again, we, sometimes we might think that. like, And this is going to be, again, more than a 3% inflation. Like, If you look at the, the numbers that they give us, the prices are 12 times higher than the normal that are mentioned here which is about the same as the price of a gallon of gas today compared to when I started driving, right? Like we think like, oh, prices are cra- crazy right now. It's gonna be to a divine level. And he's gonna use, like one commentator says that each rider on each horse, that's actually the antichrist. That's, that's some agents of the enemy, that he's gonna use all of these things for his control. And so Matthew 24, verse seven, uh, get, and it says that there will be famines. And then we get to the fourth seal, and this is a pale horse, an ashen horse. He's like a light green in color. And they're like, oh, that sounds kind of pretty. Nice light green. No, it's supposed to mimic the color of a human corpse. Yeah, not the color you want to paint your living room, okay? Like, don't walk into Menards and be like, oh, I need like a light, corpsey, green. You got something like that? Like, they, they will call the cops on you. And the rider is named Death, and Hades is gonna follow after him. So death claims the material part of a person, but Hades claims the immaterial. Hades, we understand, not Greek mythology, but Hades is the place of the undead. And let that sobering fact hit you. Verse eight, they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill. So we take our eight billion, we take out our two and a half billion that are gonna be raptured up, if that's truly what the church is. And we're left with, go with six, because I don't do math very well. A fourth of six, 1.5 billion people will be killed within the first four seals of the tribulation. That's sobering. And this is only the, per se, the first wave of three. That half the world's population pretty much will be gone either raptured or through the first four. And we still got a couple more seals to go. Like the immense death is just pointing just to this wrath that is being poured about. And then we go from those four seals and then we're looking at earth, right? And then we see this response in heaven. So you go to seal number five. And here we have a martyred saints, right? This this fifth seal is opened, and under the altar there are souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne and they're crying out sovereign Lord holy and true how long before you're going to judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth and they're given a, a white robe and they said just a little bit longer just rest a little bit more because there's still more they're going to be collected together with you there's still people that are going to die for their faith again I think in the tribulation will be one of the greatest revivals in the seven years has have so many people that'll come to faith in Jesus. The problem, the issue, the struggle that we have is most will be killed because of their faith for it. I think this is a glimpse of what we'll see in the later parts of chapter seven when John sees a great multitude and one of the elders walks up to John and says, you know who those people are? And John says, I have no idea who those people are. And he goes, those are those that were killed, that were martyred for their faith in the tribulation. That John couldn't number them. He could number the 144,000 that are sealed evangelists, but he couldn't number the great multitude that would be killed in the tribulation for their faith. And this group here is is the fifth seal that they are crying out. And so how long will you judge? How long until you're gonna judge and avenge our blood on those who are on the earth? And so this is different than us. Again, another uh, uh, interpretational. Some people believe this is all martyrs. But as you look at those, even what they're saying, how long will you avenge our blood? Those who dwell on the earth. And so if we're in that time, they're, they're, they're talking within the time period in which they were killed, which is the tribulation. So these tribulation saints are these martyrs crying out to God. And now, even for us, you know, like let's talk about that word martyr, okay? Because a lot of times we hear that and we think, oh, I need to be a martyr for my faith, I need to die for Jesus, and like there's nothing greater there for it. Like, don't get that mentality where you gotta, you know, after service, like go out, try to find somebody that's gonna kill you for your faith. Like, it's not, that's not what it is. See, in the original Greek, the word martyr really just means witness. To be a witness, give testimony of the goodness of God. Give testimony, give a defense of the hope that you have within you of Christ. Be a witness for your faith. The idea that martyr was in a, in a sense of being killed for it was just how common that happened to New Testament believers. That as they continued to give witness of the grace of God, they were killed time and time again. We, I mean, clear very closely even to the time of Jesus. That 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 first early church, I mean, Nero took Christians, put them on poles, lit them on fire, and that's how he lit up his back garden. Invited his friends over, hey, let's have a little night party. Oh yeah, I'll turn the lights on bright, don't worry. We'll be able to see everything that we want to do. And he lit his backyard with Christians on fire. And they were martyred for their faith. But we think of martyr as it's only in, in which we die. Martyr is not just the, the context of how we, the manner in which we die, but a martyr is made in the manner in which we live. We all are called to be martyrs. We're all called to be witnesses unto Christ. I and mean, that's what Acts 1.8 says, that the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth. So the same thing for us. We want the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon us. We want to be his witnesses in Osage Beach. And then Camdenton and Eldon, I'll let you figure out which one's Samaria. (laughs) If you know the joke, there you go. They were considered half-breeds, so they they were looked upon, down upon. And then to the remotest parts of the earth, they were called to be his witnesses. Now, if our faith, our witness to Christ causes our physical life to end, so be it. What would Paul say? To live is Christ and to die is gain. How beautiful it would be if the church really believed in that. That's why you couldn't shake a guy like Paul. Paul, you need to quit preaching the gospel or we're gonna kill you. Really? You would kill me and send me to be with the Lord? I don't have to endure this anymore? Well, no, you don't wanna do that. You're too excited about it. Like, how about you just quit, how about you just quit preaching the gospel like that? I think of like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looking at Nebuchadnezzar like, we don't need to answer you in this. God will save us or we're going to be with them, but we're not going to stop. And it's the same for us as the church. We're not going to stop preaching the gospel. And so now we have the sixth seal. And this is the response on earth. And not just on earth, but a response almost of the earth. Because think that, you can go back to Genesis 3 when, when there was the fall of man and, and God curses uh, you know, he curses the serpent. He curses the women. Sorry, I don't know how to tell you that. And he curses the earth. Even Romans 8 tells us that the earth groans. Like there's, it's almost like a, like I don't want this upon me. The earth is groaning. So there's even gonna be a response from the earth in a sense with this, in this tribulation and, and with the response of a return of Christ starting this campaign of it. And so there's earthquakes, there's cosmic phenomena and chaos. And if you read Joel, Hosea, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, all of these Old Testament prophets, they're all connecting extreme natural disasters and cosmic disruptions with the return of Christ. Now I get it, we have hurricanes, we have tornadoes, we have tsunamis, and you know, we can absolutely understand everything that's going on around the world. Like, are we in these times? No, it's gonna be raised to a divine level. Like, nobody's ever going to wonder, like, is this, do you think this is a tribulation or not? I don't know. Let's study it. Like, you're going to know. It's going to be there. And when you see this, you know, you uh, go back to your Matthew 24, 7, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And then we see verses 15 and 16 that what's the response of the people that are living through all of these events? They, everyone, hid themselves in caves and among rocks, and they're us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. See, here's the crazy part. What sinners dread most is not death, but the revealed presence of God. All of these things that were happening, those, instead of running to God in faith, they're running from God in fear. And whatever whatever it would mean for the mountains and the rocks to fall on us, I'd rather be apart from God as he's pouring out his wrath upon us than to run to him in faith. And we know that there is gonna be a population in this time during the tribulation that will run to God in faith, and that will be a very difficult life for them. But again, we cannot look at any of these events without the lens of the cross. That even in this, that we see God's mercy because he doesn't just fully extinguish and, and just cast all these events at the same time. He does it in a succession. He does it in an order. He does it in a rhythm, just like creation. Just like the uh, plagues in Exodus, there's a rhythm to it and it's, a, and it's not his wrath that we see more revealed, I think. It's his mercy that he still provides time and opportunity for those to come to faith in Jesus. That they would see these events and see and understand that God is pouring out his wrath and so they turn to him in faith. That even happened in Exodus, as God was pouring out his wrath on Egypt, there were those in Egypt, because he wanted to redeem Israel out, there was Egyptians looking at the Israelite gods saying, yeah, our gods can't do this, kind. I'm going with these gods. And so two and a half million came out of, ex- out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus, not all of them were Israelites. It was a mixed multitude. And so in the same kind of connotation that people are going to see the wrath of God pour out. And, and there has to be some kind of instance that they're gonna understand how the church is removed and gone. It's like they were right. They saw this, they see what God is doing now, and they're gonna turn to him in faith, and there's gonna be a great revival in that. But if you don't run to him in faith, then your only other option is to run away from him in fear. And so even for us this morning, Yes, we are not destined to live through this. And and why are we studying this if the church is gonna be raptured out before? Anybody have any lost friends or family? This is a prophetic word from the Lord that he gives us so that we could understand the events that will happen in human history. And he gives them to us as a hope and an encouragement. And you know what that encouragement is? You know what that hope is? for us to share the word of God, to share the gospel, to share with those that do not have a saving relationship with Christ. Now I get it, like I think there is more than ample evidence of just the goodness of who Christ is to save, to be delivered to him. You know, we talk about salvation to Jesus. That's absolutely enough right there. But if we literally need to scare the hell out of some people, so be it. I, I'm kind of that way too. You ever have a kid that like, you're destined to learn life the hard way. You have, like you learn more you know, when things don't go your way. You learn the hard way and that's how. Sometimes we need to see the fullness of what God is shoring up in the landscape of human history to understand that he does not want us to live through this. But the call of the church, that's why I think it's a, through the seals and then we'll see it again in the trumpets. It's ratio. It's a fourth and then we'll hear a third. Why does he need to give us uh, just a set number? Because he wants the number that is caught up with him as the church to be as great as possible. He doesn't want any to perish. But that is the work of the church through the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. And so even as we're studying these events, however crazy and, and deep and symbolic, metaphorical, whatever they are, it doesn't change the Great Commission the mission of the church for us, that as we are going in our normal everyday lives, we make disciples and we baptize them, we teach everything that Christ commanded, that everything that we're gonna study in Revelation, it doesn't negate the need for us as the church to continue, our mission hasn't changed. There isn't a new mission if we're getting closer to the, like the same thing is gonna be required of us the day before rapture as it is today, which could be the same day preach the gospel, share the hope and the grace and the mercy and the love that Christ has shown you. Look at the transformation of your own life, like give that testimony out. And me and my wife have been uh, talking a little bit recently and even with a couple of our kids, kind of the the idea of what our lives would have been like if the Lord never would have got a hold of our hearts. You know, and my in-laws were in the first service. I didn't point them out. They don't need that kind of pressure, right? their daughter's life would have looked drastically different if God wouldn't have grabbed a hold of our hearts. My life would have looked drastically different. My kids would have looked drastically different. And we say all the time, we, wouldn't, we probably never would have gotten married. She's over here, that's why I'm pointing. So if you're not my wife, I'm not pointing at you. Like, <laughs> like we, we probably wouldn't have gotten married. And if we would have, we definitely wouldn't have stayed together. That is a testimony to the goodness and the grace of the Lord in our lives. And we look at our kids and I'm just thinking, you don't understand how close of a bullet you dodged. <laughs> because me and your mom were crazy. But that's a testimony of his goodness. And that's what we are called to share. And so how do we answer this question that they're asking in verse 16 and 17 that the God the Father and the Lamb's wrath has come, who can stand against it? Turn to Re- uh, Romans, Romans chapter five if you would. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, so you, you got to read Romans 1 to 4 to understand that. Therefore, since we have been justified, we've been saved by faith, We have peace with God, meaning that when we weren't saved and we didn't have our faith in God, we weren't at peace with God. We're actually in conflict with God. But because we've been justified by our faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith, again, in Jesus, into this grace in which we stand. So who can stand? Him who has placed their faith in Christ, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that even as God is pouring out his wrath on the earth during this tribulation, this is a hope and an encouragement for us. Why? Because God is just, and all sin must be punished. God is just. He, he's not going to wink at any sin. He's not going to be like, oh, you got away with it this time, but maybe not next time. No, all sin must be punished. His wrath must be poured out on all sin, And it either can be poured out on Christ, who took our sin, who canceled our debt, or we can remain, keep that debt remained on us, but then we're going to endure the wrath of God. Who can stand? Only him who has placed their faith in Jesus. And so if you go to 1 Corinthians, so it should be Romans, and it's the next book. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I think is the one of the greatest chapters that we have to defend the resurrection of Christ. Um, I believe there's a portion here that Paul delivers to us. Verse three says that it was already formulated, probably two to four years after the resurrection of Jesus. It's called a creed, and we have those in Scripture. But look at verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. We have to understand that Jesus Christ is our propitiation. That's what 1 John 2.2 tells us. That big fancy word means that God suffered, Jesus suffered and fulfilled. He satisfied the wrath of God for us. That is why we will not be on earth to endure any one drop of the wrath of God, because that would mean that Christ is not our propitiation. That would say that Christ is not enough. He is not sufficient, but he is. He is our propitiation. He suffered and satisfied the full wrath of God for our sin, and that's not poured on us because we have turned to him in faith, and we stand in that faith with him. So they're asking there at the very end of chapter six of Revelation, who can stand? They're asking for the gospel to be preached to them. Who can stand in this? The one that has placed his faith and his trust in Jesus. And so this morning, don't be naive to think, oh, yeah, I come to church all the time, I'm saved. Oh, I'm in life group, I'm saved. I grew up in a Christian home, I'm saved. I don't care if you're on staff. If you know that you've never placed your faith and your trust in Christ, today is a beautiful morning. And if the motivation is what you're being saved to, a right relationship with Christ and understanding his grace and his peace and his care and his concern, his love for you, amen. Or if you've never placed your faith and your trust in Christ because I don't want that debt of sin on me and I don't want to endure the wrath of God And if this is even just the first wave of what you're talking about, Pastor, I don't want to endure any of that, that I know he is delivering me from something better, I'll take either motivation. But for us as the church, as we study this, even though that we are not destined to endure it, it should strengthen in us, one, our identity in Christ. We should worship him knowing that his wrath was poured out on Christ, and will never be on us. That's, that's a cause of hope and encouragement to us. It is, a, it is a, a, an opportunity for us to bow in reverence and worship to him, that you love us so much that you endured what was supposed to be ours, but you took it from us. And it should also encourage us, knowing that that day is drawing near. That phrase is used multiple times through the New Testament. That day is drawing near that that hourglass of sand is slowly going. I, I read one pastor, he has a friend who eats one M&M every year. Talk about a diet, right? He took, a, he, he took his age, minus 80, put that many M&Ms in a jar, and at the end of every year, he has one M&M, knowing that that's, there's a visual reminder of what he has left. And the encouragement is, will I be found faithful in what Christ wants to see in me and my remaining m and What am I gonna use my life for? That our life is but a mist, we are a vapor, but our short time here could be of such great significance, not just in our own life, but imagine standing in glory and you're hearing as Jerron was talking about all this worship that is going on And then there would be individuals that would say, I'm here because you shared the good news of Christ with me. That I was destined for wrath, a child of wrath, but you shared and God grabbed a hold of my heart. See, that's the encouragement that we have. And so go to Romans three as we close up. Romans three, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been made known, been revealed, apart from the law. So we don't need the law. It's apart from the law. The righteousness of God, apart from the law. The law could never bring, could never save us. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How great would it be if when God raptures the church up, Satan and his minions are just down here saying... Well, there's nobody left. What do we do? Well, I guess we're just going to hang out for seven years. That that all of humanity was saved. Would that not be glorious? Because do know that that is God's heart. It is his heart that all would come to salvation in him. By faith, for there is no distinction. And understand this, for all have sinned. Past tense. So if you didn't know you were a sinner, welcome. Welcome to the club. We're all sinners, pastor included. And we fall short, so that's current tense. That means that we continually do that, pastor included, fall short all the time. Ask my wife. Actually, don't ask her. She'll tell you too much. We all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Yeah, like sharing our faith, evangelism, preach the gospel. Those are kind of some weird, might freak you out kind of terms like, I'm not an evangelist, but don't we love to give good gifts? Like who doesn't love that, right? Let's just be good gift givers, and we have the greatest gift to give people that probably have never received the greatest gift ever. Let's just be good gift givers, and we have the greatest. And so we we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. As we continue in Revelation, I mean, you're gonna think, this is a bloodbath. But we have to understand that is only happening because the blood of Jesus on the cross was rejected. So be sure of your own salvation this morning. And I pray that as we continue in this 21 days of impact, it's always focused on one another. It's not gonna be about mowing grass or lawn. it's always, it's going to be people focused. Why? Because Jesus was people focused. And I pray that the Lord would put upon your heart someone that he wants you to impact with the truth and the grace and the love and the mercy of his word. That they were maybe not in a relationship with him, but he wants to use you. And we are these, these earthen jars of clay vessels, but we have the greatest treasure. And so I pray that the Lord put somebody on your heart. Be assured of your own salvation, but I pray that the Lord would put somebody on your heart that he is, he, wants, he, he is choosing to use you to be the best gift giver. Not because of who you are. You just got the greatest gift in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so allow revelation to encourage us in our gift-giving evangelism, sharing the gospel to those who have none because we know how the story is going to end.